Okay, good evening, everyone. I'm uh, excited to be back here after <clears throat> missing a couple of these uh, installments in our study through the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm grateful for Don <clears throat> and his work on the Lord's Prayer and how to interact and respond to enemies uh, as Jesus is teaching through this portion of um, what we're calling this portion on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus is really dealing with every aspect of life lived following in his footsteps. Uh, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is asking his followers to walk in his footsteps, which is to mimic his pattern of life. And so he's teaching every aspect of life in this sermon. So I'm excited to jump back into it this evening. Would you join me in Matthew chapter 6? And when you find your face there, your place there, go ahead and uh, stand with me and we'll read the portion for the evening. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1, and then we'll jump to verse 16, uh, recognizing that Don covered the Lord's Prayer last week, but these portions sort of work together thematically. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In the last section, verse 19 through 24, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? Finally, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for your word and for our time together in it this evening. Uh, May you teach us and may you challenge us and convict us. May you encourage us and shape us. May you mold us and prepare us for the calling to which you have called us to be the salt and the light, to be your ambassadors, members of a foreign kingdom here in this alien world. Truly, this is not our home. We have a temporary post here on this earth before we spend eternity with you. And while we are here, we have a purpose and a calling. And so, Lord, may you, by the teaching of your word, may you wash us and purge us of all that would distract and detract from us fulfilling our calling as your ambassadors on this earth for the brief period of time that we have. Would you give us the strength and the veracity to obey uh, with reckless abandon that which you call us to as your disciples. Help us, and Lord, if you answer all of those prayers, it will have been a, an evening of miracles. And so we ask for such, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I like Calvin's introduction to this portion. He says, Hitherto the Lord Christ was rebuking the false teachings and interpretations of Scripture by which the people had been led only to avoid sinning with the fist, the heart meanwhile remaining internally entirely impure. (laughs) Or you could say verse 21, where your treasure is. (laughs) there your heart will be also. It is, if you will, the theme of this entire section. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is about the business of getting to the heart of his hearers. The Jews were very good at doing the right thing with the hand, but they had also become critically experts over their years living under his law at neglecting the heart. Bodhi Bauckham says the gospel is about much more than how we get to heaven. The gospel is about the work of Christ saturating every aspect of our lives. And so the aspect of our lives that this portion is addressing is primarily what we do with our luxuries, how we handle our luxuries, not our necessities, but our luxuries. If you'll notice verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The idea there is you have so much that you can store it. So you have excess that you can store. He's saying don't store the excess on earth. Store the excess in heaven. 
But what's he talking about? The excess, not just what you need. It's, this is different from our Father in heaven, right? Uh, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. It's beyond the daily bread. It's the treasures that you can store or the treasures that you can invest, rather, in the kingdom. And so in this conglomeration of verses, 1 through 4 and 16 through 24, we are offered two treasuries, two kingdoms, two masters. In each case, as you can see the title of the sermon, in each case, we are offered the eternal over the temporal. We are challenged to choose the eternal over the temporal. Two treasuries, two kingdoms, two masters. I have formulated our time under the heading of three questions. Three questions that I believe the text sort of imposes onto us, the reader, or it would be us, the listener of the sermon of our Savior. The first question is simply, who is the audience in your giving or in your fasting or in your sacrificial serving? Who is the audience? Beware, verse 1, again, of practicing your righteousness before other people. Look, in order to be seen by them. As a young um, uh, and very immature Christian in the church, um, I, I was playing music in front of the church body since I was nine years old. Um, and as such, I had... Uh, gotten quite accustomed to being in front of people. I had become all too uh, comfortable with people complimenting and encouraging me. Whether it was good or not, my church family was perhaps just wanting to encourage me along. I had gotten too used to the idea of being in front of people, too comfortable with the notion that what I do up here is special, and all of you aren't. And I remember the day that the Lord really convicted me about this. I think I was about 15. And I was on the platform, um, and I was in the middle of singing some worship song, got my guitar and my song, and I caught... I caught the internal dialogue in my own, like, subconscious, right? Because, you know, you can do this. You can be talking to someone but be thinking about someone else. Well, I can be preaching, and my mind is doing other things. I'm accessing files, you know, of, like, information that I've read and heard over the years, you know. I'm thinking about stories, and should I tell that story or should I not tell that story? Meanwhile, I'm saying something else, right? We can do this. Our brains can do this. And so I remember catching the dialogue that was happening in my mind as I was singing, oh, you know, Jesus, I love you, whatever cheese ball worship song I was doing at 15. And the conversation was about, was I was wondering, like, you know, how I looked, if the girls thought I was cute, you know, how cool I looked with my new guitar strap, you know, really stupid, immature 
selfish, ridiculous, idolatrous thoughts. It's part of why I'm hesitant to allow young people to, you know, to have much serving responsibility. I'm going to serve, but don't get a big head because a big head's easy, especially when you're young. And I, I really, I, I had a hard time finishing like the songs, and I had a hard time later on like that week because I realized I was doing this all the time. It was just this moment that I was finally convicted about it. And then I began to analyze, like, how many times have I led songs and how many times have I played music in the church and how much of that, how much of that was for me and how much of it was genuinely for Jesus. And I was wrecked. I was broken. That's what Jesus is after. He's after the intent Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There is this, um, there's this image that Jesus paints, uh, and, I, and I can't remember the, the exact spot off the top of my head, so forgive me. But it's where Jesus paints this picture of God <clears throat> as like a farmer holding one of those big, wide-toothed pitchforks. And, and next to God, the farmer, is, is a, a, a roaring fire, just blazing hot fire. And he's, he's taking with the pitchfork, and he's scooping up, you know, this like, in my mind, I imagine him describing it like a bundle of some type of a crop yield. And... And he's, and he's sifting it. He's shaking it, right? And then he's pitching what's left on the fork into the fire. And Jesus describes this in such a way that, that when the Father is shaking that fork, that only the things that you truly did in your guts that were truly selfless and for him, they're heavy enough to remain in heaven. But the rest of that bundle of your activity that did with a divided mind and that you did with, with selfish and intentions and well, like what I was describing there on the stage, all of that is pitched into the fire. And, and I've thought a lot about in my lifetime just how much of my actions are, the Lord is just gonna say that, that wasn't for me. That's not fruit that remains in eternity. And just scoop after scoop, and that pile of my activity of my life gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And, I, and my fear is that I'm going to be standing in heaven. I'm going to be watching God scoop my life's actions into the fire because they were selfish and, and self-focused down to where like what's left is like this pathetic little like, I'm like scraping it up, you know what I mean? And I'm into like a little dustbin. Okay, that's what will remain for all of eternity. Oh, you dropped one. Oh, oh God, <laughs> little tweezers, you know what I mean? 
And I like, you know, sheepishly march into eternity, grateful to be there, but like, man, my little cup is pretty pathetic of what didn't get burned up through the all-seeing gaze of God. Do you understand? That's what Jesus is talking about. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's just going to get pitched into the fire. So who's the audience? Who is the audience in your giving? Or if you go up to verses 16 to 18, in your fasting. Right, he's talking about fasting. And when you fast, you do. You feel tired. You feel depleted. You feel exhausted. And uh, apparently one of the traditions um, is that when you're fasting, you would also like, you know, put ashes on your head like you're mourning. And you might even kind of like rub the ashes in your cheek. And, you know, and someone would say, hey, Don, what, are, everything okay? Look, you're mourning. Oh, I'm fasting. <laughs> right? <laughs> Woe is me, I've fasted for a great many hours for the Lord. Yeah. Jesus said, uh, hey guys, that's stupid. Stop doing that. Yeah. Who's the audience? So he says, if you're going to fast, don't do the traditional thing and put dirt on your face. Clean yourself up. W- one time I was really sick in, in uh, college, uh, but I didn't want to miss class. I think it was kind of the kind of thing where like, I had missed the, the maximum um, <laughs> allotted number of misses you know, before you get just like a DQ for the class. So it's like, I got to go. And, uh, and so um, I got up like hours earlier than normal and I, like, I took a long hot shower and I fixed my hair and kind of got myself together because I felt like if I get dressed and you know, put myself together, then I can kind of like put on a face and just blend in and not, you know, and not just kind of like be like, you know like the hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, because that's how I felt. And my friend Kelly, she said, I thought you were sick. I said, yeah, yeah, I can't miss any more classes. And she goes, you're the best looking sick person I've ever seen. <laughs> but it was, it was just because I, I felt like if I got myself together, I'd feel a little bit better. You're the best looking sick person I've ever seen. And we both had a nice laugh. I'll never forget that because I always think about that with this passage. You know, you feel lousy, you're depleted because you're fasting, you know, clean up, you know, polish it up a little bit. Otherwise, you run the risk of drawing attention to yourself. And oh, I'm fasting. Jesus says, well, you have received your reward. Other people thought, What a spiritual guy. What a spiritual gal. Wow. Champion of the faith over here, fasting. I haven't fasted. I missed breakfast last week, and I was angry, you know? Couldn't get to that Chick-fil-A line fast enough. This guy's skipping a whole day's worth. Wow, super spiritual giant. He must have a costume, you know, like a superhero Congratulations, people think highly of you. You have received your reward. And in a few decades, when you get to the throne of judgment, (laughs) right into the fire, 
right? Two treasuries. One treasury, everything burns. The other treasury, it remains. Choose wisely, right? Choose wisely. So that's the first thing. Who's the audience? But then I came across this thing. Verse 2, it says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. And I went like this. Who's blowing a trumpet? When did that happen? Are you saying, Jesus, that people are blowing trumpets when they give? Can you imagine marching back to the offering box? Dun, 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 you know what I mean? Right? And, you, and as, you, as you, 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 with one hand, you place your envelope in the box, and the other, you, you know, and everybody's like, what is happening over Oh, Daniel, he's giving an offering back there, sounding his trumpet. Yes, yeah, sorry, you're in my line of vision. You know, I, I saw you. Daniel's back there giving, and he's sounding a trumpet. Hey, everybody, just drop the big check, and the longer the song, the bigger the check, Right? Can you imagine that? That sounds bonkers, doesn't it? And so I started doing some research on this, and apparently there's, uh, there came a tradition, and from it come some interesting lessons. It had become a tradition with the Jews that, that I believe was begun with good intentions. It piggybacks off of the nature of trumpets being blown in the old covenant system at various times at festivals and things like that for Israel. They, they took that tradition of the trumpet being blown for various times and they applied it to whenever they would give to the poor or when they would give in the synagogues, the local synagogues. And it was begun perhaps, and I emphasize the perhaps, with these good intentions. First, as a means of corporate celebration. Corporate celebration. People hear the trumpet. Hey, hey, something good just happened. Some generosity just happened somewhere. This is encouraging to the people who hear it because that means God is blessing his people so much they're able to provide for the poor. They're able to care for the needy among them in the next street over. God is blessing us. Even our poor are being provided for. Praise the Lord, I just heard a trumpet. Make sense? And you can see how that, that line of reasoning would carry through in the culture. Heard a trumpet. Praise God. God is being generous to his people. Even the poor among us are being provided for. Secondly, um, it was a trumpet sound to inspire others to give. Hey, a trumpet was just sounded. A, a big offering was given to the temple, and, you know, praise the Lord. And it's kind of like, man, you know what? I can give more. I can do more. I, 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 haven't, I haven't brought a voluntary gift above and beyond what the Lord requires in a long time. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go give. I heard the trumpet, and it kind of it convicted me to, to be generous and respond to the Lord with gratitude for all the blessings he's given to us. And that's good. That's a good thing. Now, that may have been a, the intent behind the tradition when it began, 
And that is to say, it most likely began during what's called the Second Temple period. So that's, that's after the return from the Babylonian captivity, when Nehemiah rebuilt the walls and Ezra helped rebuild the temple. And then they had this period where they were living back in Israel with a new temple governed by the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians and the, eventually the Romans. But for several hundred years, this intertestamental period, this second temple period, and a lot of these traditions that were being practiced by the Pharisees began and kind of made their roots in the people during that time. So probably only for a couple of hundred years, not going all the way back to Abraham. And so that may have been the intent behind the, tradi the, the tradition of blowing the trumpet when someone's being generous. But what it became was a show of performative righteousness, which is to say good deeds done to look good in the eyes of men. To which Jesus responded, you have the reward you sought. You have the reward you sought. You blew the trumpet to be seen and thought well of by men. Congratulations, you have the reward you sought. But the reward you will not receive is God thinking highly of you. And the reason is because God sees what men cannot. God looks at the heart. My family and I are slowly working our way through 1 Samuel right now uh, at our evening reading. We just read this a few nights ago. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Beyond that, we read about the Word of God being living and active and able to pierce between joints and marrow. And what else does it do? It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God, it digs in there. It discerns. And so the lessons here are multiple with this tradition that became performative righteousness. Number one, Men's approval on earth is immediate and quantifiable, while God's reward and approval is delayed and experienced only by faith. Man's reward is immediate. It's right now. And it's quantifiable. 18 people said, nice song, right? It's immediate and it's quantifiable. God's reward is delayed. You want to talk about delayed reward, you think about the man Jeremiah, the faithful prophet of the Lord. He's called the weeping prophet because a lifetime of faithful ministry, zero converts. <laughs> His reward for being obedient to God while on earth was to be hated by the kings of Israel, to be thrown into prison, And to live a life of misery, holding on to the only hope that he had, which is that God's reward is delayed and experienced only by faith. Faith is the evidence of what is unseen, right? And so it is experienced in that way. And so that's the contrast. Make your choice. Man's approval is immediate and quantifiable. God's approval is delayed 
and believed on by faith. The second lesson is this. Good intentions often make bad theology, bad policy, and undermine core values. Good intentions often make for bad theology, bad policy, and undermine core values. We have a good intention. We're going to blow the trumpet and we're going to encourage others. Okay, but you know what it easily devolved into? Something that was an abhorrent action in the eyes of God. Good intentions are not sufficient. Intent matters because the Lord is looking at the intent of the heart. But intent is not enough. We need intent and a rudder. The rudder being the word of God, which keeps us. Intent is not enough. Follow your heart is bad theology. Your heart is deceptive and wicked. Who can know it? Remember the quote from this past Sunday from the Westminster Confession? While we are saved from sin's power, sin's presence still remains, even poisoning the will that God has redeemed and the will that in your salvation God gives you which can enable you to desire to do good. That will is also still poisoned because we're still wrapped in this unredeemed flesh. And so what do we need? We can't trust our gut. We need intent, but also a rudder. Good intentions make bad theology. Calvin's summary on this is most helpful. Jesus does not rebuke the work, but their purpose and aim in doing it. For the deed would be in itself good, but it is, listen to this, spoiled by their smearing their filth over it. It's <laughs> great. Sorry, maybe I'm just a nerd. Like I get a, I got a kick out of that when I when I read that. Because they seek only their own glory and honor before the people by it, and do it not for the sake of God or their neighbor. And so the question just echoes through the millennia, from Jesus all the way up to today. When you give, when you fast, when you serve sacrificially, who is the audience? What is your aim? What is your intent? The second question raised by this section is, will you function in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light? Number two, darkness or light. Will you function in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. And we come here by way of verse 22 and 23. Potentially some of the most confusing turns of phrase in the entire Sermon on the Mount. When we read it earlier, if you were paying attention, you probably did what I did, which is you go, hold on, what? Anybody else? Did some, please tell me somebody else went, hey, what? Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Please tell me that you all didn't just go, oh yeah, 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 I get you. I'm with you, Jesus. Right? Please tell me I'm not the only person who's sitting here with my Bible going, huh? Okay, good. Thank you. It's a confusing turn of phrase. Here is the meaning. 
through the eye, sunlight enters and illuminates, right? You can't see anything if your eyes are closed. Light needs to enter the eye in order for the eyeball to be able to do its work and see the world around you, right? So through the eye, sunlight enters. Metaphorically here, light enters your private world. That is what no one else sees. Through the eye, sunlight enters your private world. Light then shines into it. If the eye is bad, if the light cannot enter, your private world will be shrouded in shadows and riddled with dark corners. So you have this, this concept of your, your private world. There's your public world, it's what everybody can see, and then there's your private world, which is, of course, what Jesus is after in all of this. Your private world is what you think about, your thoughts that no one else can hear but you. Your private world is what you want more than anything else. You say you want this, but what you really want is that. That's your private world. Your private world is what you crave. And the idea of the Christian life is that the word of God spoken discerns the heart. It shines into the private world. And occasionally, or perhaps repeatedly, the word of God preached by the preacher or read by the learner is shining into not just what's visible, but into that private world of yours. And suddenly, it comes to your attention that this one of those corners has been suddenly illuminated. Like when I was on the stage and I was 15 years old, suddenly my thoughts that had been being entertained for a long time were suddenly brought to my attention. The light came in and illuminated this dark corner. And what was in it was, was filth and mold and grotesque self-absorption. And what came next was conviction. I had a great conversation this past Sunday uh, with a church member when I, I told the story about the, the, the candy and the t-shirt and that kind of, and for whatever reason, it resonated with this guy, and he said, oh man, you were talking about this, and I just felt convicted, like, oh, God keeps us by convicting us, and I was feeling convicted about this, and it, what was happening? The light was shining into a corner, it suddenly came to his attention. That's what this is all about. Light shining in to the eye. But if the light's not coming in, if, friend, you're constantly skipping the Sunday service, if, friend, you're constantly skipping out on your private time, reading the scriptures on a daily basis, if you're skipping moments of quiet meditation on the word, if you're skipping memorization, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you're skipping these things, friend, Jesus is saying basically your eyes are being closed to the light that's meant to illuminate your real self. And if you shut out the light, verse 23, how great is the darkness. 
So where does the eye need to be focused? On the light and on the light alone. In fact, again, to quote Calvin, he says this is a word actually of warning, saying, let your eye be single, not evil. He doesn't say single, not double. Not, he doesn't say single, not divided. He says single, not evil. Why? Well, because a divided gaze, meaning I've got one eye on Jesus and one eye on my secret obsessions. A divided gaze, says Calvin, isn't just unhelpful. It doesn't just make you less effective. It doesn't just make you less productive for the kingdom. It's evil. Let your eye be single, not evil. That's That one, that one poked me. You know, like the goad, you're being poked by the word of the pastor, by the word of the scriptures. But then you think about other things that Jesus and the apostles said, and it begins to make sense. Let not your eye be single, excuse me, or let your eye be single, not evil. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back what do he say? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is effective. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is productive, useful. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow, that is to take up his cross and follow me, to begin to harvest the field of God, but then who looks back to his former way of life or to the, the alluring things of the world, he's not fit for the kingdom. This is, this is about more than just being an effective tool in the hand of God and how our, our sinful inclinations or our, our ties to the world, how we are oftentimes being pulled between the good and the evil that surrounds us. It's, it's not just about being ineffective for God's kingdom. It's about not being worthy of it. That's terrifying. But then you go to James, and James also says, a double-minded man, that is to say, again, one eye here, one eye there, believing but doubting, asking with doubt. The double-minded man is unstable, look, in all his ways. Therefore, this half-hearted followership of Jesus makes you worse off than just being a dull tool in God's hands, you're unstable, unpredictable, unreliable. I've got a knife. It's what's called a fixed blade knife, so it doesn't, it doesn't fold like this one, right? It doesn't, it's a fixed blade. It goes into a sheath, you know, and that sheath goes like on your hip, and you feel really cool when you wear it, yeah? But, but every knife, especially a fixed blade knife, but every knife has what's called a, a finger well. 
And, and it's this notch right here, if you look carefully, right there. And it's what's meant to keep your finger from sliding forward and coming over the blade of the knife. Yeah? A finger well. And when you study knife making, you study the importance of that finger well in the ability to use the tool. Well, I had gotten a new knife, and it was a cheap knife. I got it because I signed up for something. And I was like, oh, man, hey, a little fixed blade knife, you know? And I, and I used it for just a second, and that finger well, it's too small. And my finger slid over that blade so fast, whoosh, four stitches, just like that. And I'm a guy who's been doing this my whole life. I'm not a rookie, <laughs> but I felt like a rookie that day. <laughs> rookie mistake. What'd you do? I cut my finger with my own knife, you know. It's like opening an envelope. You know, like I wasn't even doing anything cool. I've not used that knife ever since. Do you know why? It's unpredictable. It's unreliable. It's unstable. And so it stays in the drawer. It's not just that it's dull and it makes a good screwdriver. No, it hurt me when I tried to use it because it's not made properly. It's unreliable. Friends, you know, much is made of this phrase that, that it's the lukewarm <laughs> that God will spew from his mouth. But, but that's the image that I, that I had in my mind when I read this this week. And unreliable unpredictable can't use you sorry I don't want to be that guy I don't want my church family to be those people now we want to be sharp tools we want to be reliable tools and so again, the gospel is about much more than how we get to heaven. The gospel is about the work of Christ saturating every aspect of our lives, Bodie Bauckham. And so here Jesus is calling for full commitment, not half-hearted pretending, not, not keeping the light out of these dark corners. He's asking for all of you, your whole mind, your whole heart, not a divided will, not a divided mind, not a divided desire. And when you apply this to the context, laying up your treasures in heaven, giving to the needy with your wealth, well, now we're talking about what you do with your money. A divided mind when it comes to money. Wherever you find false teaching, you find this double mind. You find one eye who wants to, kind of on Jesus, wanting to do the right thing, but one eye in the candy bowl, right? One eye on the goods. MacArthur says, wherever you have religious hypocrisy, inevitably you have the problem of greed. And you do find this. These things go hand in hand. Bad theology and an emphasis on money, Right? And then following in the wake of a false teacher with bad theology and an emphasis on money, you have what? 
a whole po- a pool of people in his wake that are themselves double-minded. Got one eye on the world and one eye on that pocketbook. You know? Perhaps wanting to follow Jesus but being ensnared by the allurement of this life's pleasures, they are not whole. Their spiritual insights are shallow. Their discernment of what is wise and good, right and wrong, is hindered and ineffective. Calvin calls them confused and says that their brains are broken. These people, again, one eye, one eye, these people are also ensnared, Calvin says, who insist so confidently upon it that their cause is the pure truth, so that they may swear everything upon it, and yet it is all nothing but dreams and the thoughts of cracked-brained people. Right? They believe they're right. They believe it with veracity. Therefore, it is a dangerous thing if one does not cling closely and simply to God's word and allows himself to be led away from it to the thoughts of men that have an excellent appearance and soon captivate so that he who falls within their influence cannot afterwards extricate himself from it. Sounds like a lot of evangelical churches, right? Not all of us with an excellent appearance have bad theology. Thanks, Ryan gave me a big shake of the head like. No, that's captivated by men with an excellent appearance, but they cannot afterwards extricate themselves from it. What's happening? These double-minded pastors are leading double-minded congregations who have one eye on things of the Spirit and one eye on materialism. And Jesus says, it makes you unfit for the kingdom. James says, it makes you unstable. And here, Jesus says, how great is the darkness. Well, that's a big warning, friends. And I'll just summarize the last, uh, the third question because it's pretty well implied in what we've already covered. The third question is, will your master be God or money? You know, it's not complicated. I've got a series of scriptures that I'd love to share with you that we don't have time for tonight. Um, Exodus, Ezekiel, Deuteronomy, Proverbs. The Bible has a lot of warnings about the love of money. And yet the Bible also tells us that it was, it's God who gives us the ability to work and earn. You know, by wisdom is a house built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So having something is not a sin, and yet the dangers of seeking after and loving and serving the pursuit of wealth. The warnings about that are replete in the scriptures as well. So the question is not whether or not God sometimes blesses his children or whether it's okay to enjoy the good things that he's given to us. The question is simply, 
that God is always concerned with the heart. And so the implication is simple. Just make deposits in the eternal bank. Hold loosely to the wealth that you do acquire. Don't lay up treasure on earth. Lay up treasure in heaven. Uh, John Wesley was a wealthy man. He, um, we know of, of Wesley because um, of his evangelism and his church planting. He's a man of power, a man of prayer, a man of God. He's the only man that has the distinction of having two evangelical Protestant denominations named after him. There's the Methodists, which he founded, and then there's the Wesleyans, who are like, we're really super into his stuff, that we're not even totally Methodist, we're Wesleyan Methodists. Like, wow. Pretty cool guy. What you might not know about him is that he was incredibly wealthy. And he spent his life, as he was evangelizing and preaching, he spent his life giving away tens of thousands of dollars so that when he died, he was worth 25 bucks. He stored up his treasures in heaven. Yeah. So, well, let us do the same. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and the simple lessons that we find in it, compelling us to follow you truly and not half-heartedly, not keeping one eye in the world and one eye on you, but uh, as you implore us to come and to follow you with eagerness and gladness and fervency. Now, let us not be like that, that farmer who has his hand to the plow in the work of your kingdom, but looks back. Keep our eyes forward and convict us where we perform for others, receiving a, a pithy temporary reward sacrificing the greater eternal reward. Help us, convict us accordingly, guide us, and ultimately use us for your kingdom, for the sake of your name. In Christ we pray, amen.